Well, good morning, everyone. Why don't we just uh, stand up and stretch a little bit here? I know it's warm. And uh, my hope is this morning that the uh, Word of God is going to light a fire under all of you. But until we get going on that, I want you to stretch a little bit and get ready to go. Okay, well, one, th- one thing that came to my mind as I was uh, listening to Pastor Josh, uh, he said this is the 13th year of the Turkey Bowl. That means that now Pastor Josh has been ministering to us as long as my first stint as your pastor was, which was 13 years. Uh, I came back for a kind of a, uh, an encore a year or two after that, but that's, that's a long time, Josh. We're growing up with you here, wherever you are, wherever you just went. And uh, we just, uh, I don't know about you, but I thank God every day for bringing Pastor Josh to us. He's my uh, wildest dream as a pastor. So having uh, spilt the coffee (laughs) and not on the remote, hey, we're ready to go. What I want you to do, please, is everyone get a Bible in your hand or your app or whatever and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. That's where we're going to spend almost all of our time this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And I would really like you to have, all of you, to have that in front of you as we go through it. Um, Because, uh, well, I'm just pretty sure by the time I'm done, you're going to know why I want that in front of you. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. If you're not really a student of the Bible, that's the sixth book in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Now, just set our thoughts. When I walked into work about a week ago, Jody, my associate pharmacist, said, Well, Tom, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. Which do you want first? And I'm just curious, uh, when we've all been asked that question, how many of you want to hear the good news first? How many want the bad news? Yeah, that's usually what I choose too. I usually choose the bad news first. And the reason for that is because the good news looks all the better in the light of the bad news. But this morning, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does just the opposite. Now... I have noticed that as people get older, they tend to become more and more concerned about where things are headed. Now, I am no exception to that. I'm concerned for my children, not in the sense I, I, I was when I was, they were in the home and such, but I, I'm still concerned for uh, their choices in life and, and uh, how, how things will affect them, how they'll parent the grandchildren. I'm concerned for my grandchildren for different reasons. They're growing up in a very different world than I grew up in. Uh, I'm concerned for our nation. I think many of you are concerned for our nation. I'm concerned for the world situation. Um, and I'm concerned for the church. And That may sound funny coming from me, because if you know me, I am Mr. Optimism. I always expect things to go well. If I played the lottery, I would expect to win every day. That's just how I am. I've been a Cub fan my whole life. I know there's next year. You understand? I'm a very optimistic person. But one, the thing that concerns me more now than really at any point in my life on a broad scale is that the idea 
that increasingly is so that we are to be tolerant above everything else. That there really are no rights and wrongs, that we must be tolerant and accepting of everything that comes our way. Now, we all know that Christianity is an exception to that in our present media and world. Uh, And you know what? Some of that's good. Maybe we need to be more tolerant and understanding. Some of it is not. Now, most of you have heard the term moral relativism. How many of you could define that? I'm going to see to it that we all can this morning. Moral relativism. And uh, the reason I put that up there is for at least a generation now more, this particular philosophy has been gaining and gaining and gaining acceptance, uh, particularly among the intellectual elite of our world and certainly on college campuses. This is the norm. Uh, Young people, if you haven't heard of it yet, you're going to hear about it when you go away to school. And what that is is the view that ethical standards, morality... And the positions of right or wrong are culturally based and therefore subject to a person's individual choice. We can all decide what is right for ourselves. And you know very well, if you listen to the news at all, every day there's some sensational story about some bigoted, ignorant person, unloving, hateful individual who doesn't agree with something that he or she should agree with. Or says something is wrong that he or she should not say is wrong according to the people doing the report. Um, And again, that usually Christianity, traditional Christianity is exempted. You know, that's free game for everyone. Now this philosophy, as I mentioned earlier, has some merit. Uh, and, and, And I agree with it, but it depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about your diet, for example, some cultures would say it's okay to eat worms. I don't think that's okay. I think we can disagree on that. Um, Or pork or not. Lots of cultures say eating pork is not okay. I think it's great. I'm going to have some today. Uh, Or apparel, for example. Last week, uh, I think it was Pastor Dan, or I forget who did the announcements, mentioned that Josh had a tie on in India. Well, that was cultural. You know, he didn't want to make offense there. That's considered the right apparel for a pastor. So he put on a tie. Things like that are okay. Our social activities, I think some tolerance on that sort of thing is is warranted. Like, is it okay to have a drink or not? Is it okay to play the lottery or not? Is it okay to go to casinos or not? Um, and worship. You saw how these people, bless their hearts, were dancing and raising their arms and praising God. I think that's great. Coming from our culture, a lot of us are not comfortable with that. Things like that, it's okay. We should be tolerant. But being intolerant of everything, saying that everything is right, and if you disagree, you're just flat out wrong and hateful and unloving, that leaves no room for a sovereign God. That's the problem with it. It leaves no room for a sovereign God. And it's really nothing new because a thousand years before Jesus was even born in Bethlehem, there was moral chaos in Israel. And the last verse in the book of Judges describes it this way. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it's really nothing new. And I think the writer of Ecclesiastes basically said that. There's really nothing new under the sun. That just happens to be the thing right now. Now, this morning, I'm going to address a subject which is a passion of mine. I don't preach much anymore, so when I do, I pick something that really lights my candle. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I want to examine what I consider to be the best news that humanity has ever received. It is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, moral relativism would say that there, yeah, that may be right for you. It's okay, but it's not right for someone who, someone else. It's not universal. Moral relativism would say that there is no truth that is true for all people everywhere at all times. Well, I believe the gospel is true for all people in all places, at all times. I'll give you a few people that said to believe the same thing. One is the Apostle Peter. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'll stand with Peter on that one. I'll actually stand with Jesus on this too. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. He taught it as a universal truth. And I believe it furthermore because the Apostle Paul in our verses today and following presents this as a universal truth in the most profound doctrinal book in the New Testament, i.e. the book of Romans. So, in the first 15 verses of this book, the Apostle Paul introduces himself. He states the essence uh, of his message and his motives for desiring to visit Rome. And then he gets to the point, beginning in verses 14 and 15. He says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and barbarians. He said, uh, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He was under obligation. When Jesus knocked him down on the way to Damascus and he acknowledged Jesus and believed in him as his savior, it turned the apostle Paul 180 degrees. And he's the first words out of his mouth. What will you have me to do, Lord? And Jesus said, I will show you what you must do. And Paul was under obligation to preach the gospel. And nothing ever put him on track. He was eager to get to Rome and do that. And and that's why he adds in verse 16, the first part, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why did he say that? Why did he start out by saying, hey, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Well, I believe there's a number number of reasons. First of all, Rome in that day was the was center of, of intellect and reason and power. Uh, and it was a center of many diverse religions at the time. Romans and Greeks also fancied themselves as intellectually superior to other people. They would be the intellectual elite of today. They were always the smartest person in the room. And so they, it was as if Paul was hearing, yeah, Paul, right. Uh, your gospel may sell to the uneducated masses. You know, they'll believe about anything. Bring it here to Rome. 
We'll put it under the microscope and we will tear it apart. They will not, it will not affect us. We will outwit you and your message. We're far too sophisticated for that. Nothing so bizarre could ever do that. Well, Paul was not ashamed. So what about his intended audience? Rome. Nero was their emperor, a thoroughly evil man. He killed his own mother. He murdered his first two wives. And we know that Rome itself was a cesspool of debauchery of the day. This week, I actually went to Google and put up uh, most sinful cities in the world. And it popped up 10 right away. Uh, Among them were Las Vegas, which prides itself in being Sin City. Uh, Amsterdam, Rio de Janeiro, Tijuana, Mexico. Number one was a place in Thailand I'd never heard of before. But never been there, don't intend to go. Anyways, Paul's message was diametrically opposed to the culture of Rome. And not just who, where he was going and to whom he was going, but the message. Paul's savior, Jesus, was a despised Jew. Yeah, people were racist then too. And the Jews were about as low as you could get. What had the Romans done to him? They had crucified him which was designed for the very purpose of torture and shame. They had killed him. This was the one that Paul was going to go there and preach as the Messiah. Uh, Jesus died for all people. Are you kidding me? He arose from the dead. How bizarre. Uh, he, he, uh, and, and, uh, but Paul was not ashamed. He was eager. And why was he so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? And this is what we want to talk about today. We need to examine four words that answer that question. And if you mark in your Bibles, just underline these words as we go through them. Everyone there? Romans 1, verses 16 and 17? Here we go. The first word is power. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. Uh, it's from the Greek word dunamis, from where we get our di- word dynamite. It's a boom of God in truth. And I don't want to take anything for granted to hear. We all need to know what the good news of the gospel is before we can correctly examine it. And I know that means different things to different people. But I am going to give you what I consider to be the most clear and comprehensive and simplest explanation of the gospel in Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes there, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preach to you which you received, in which you stand. He goes on to say, if you didn't, you are believing in vain. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. You want to know what the most important thing you can know in Scripture? According to the Apostle Paul, it is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That's numero uno. Right there. That he was buried and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scripture. Oh, fulfilling the scripture. 
You want to know what the most important truth in the Bible is? The good news? Jesus died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again the third day. Why was that important? Because they asked Jesus on a number of occasions, what sign do you give us for what you're teaching and doing? And he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He says, kill me, and on the third day I'll rise again. Then you will know that everything I am saying and teaching and claiming for myself is true. That is the essence of the good news right there. Now, God is God, right? He is, as such, omnipotent. He holds all the power. When man sinned in the garden and the image into which he had been created was marred, as Pastor Josh likes to say, and was separated from God because of sin, God really could have done anything he wanted, right? Probably the simplest thing would have been to go, human beings are gone. But he didn't do that, did he? That would have been a profound demonstration of his power to curse, like we talked about last week. Instead, God extended his grace to us and demonstrated his power to bless and his will to bless. And I've rejoiced in this ever since being first saved in 1971. And I still cannot fathom the love of God that he has for us. To forgiving a sinful human being and reconcile him to himself is a very, very powerful thing. Why? Because the one being reconciled must become a new creation. You know, and, and that's exactly what happens when one receives the gospel and is saved. Uh, many of you could quote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the first word is power, in which God recreates us through faith in the gospel. The second word, salvation. Salvation. Well, try it again. Salvation. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for what? For salvation. Why did God allow why did, why did God allow Jesus to die on the cross? Why did he go to such lengths for us? The simple answer is love. Really, you can't come up with another explanation than that. Uh, he loves us. But there's more to it probably than that. Salvation is a profound demonstration of God's power. How so? Well, all human beings are born in sin. Is a little baby sinful? No, but they are sinners by nature. They're born in sin. It's something that is part of our human condition. And the image of God is marred in that child and marred in all of us until it's fixed. Now, in, in, in salvation, God perfectly demonstrates his perfect attributes of justice and holiness. Sin demanded death. The soul that sins, it will die. So either we had to die for our own sin or something else had to happen. And we know what that was, didn't we? 
The legal penalty had to be paid. God could not just say, you're forgiven. Now, why couldn't he do that? He's omnipotent. He can do anything. God could not just say to human beings, okay, you're forgiven. Because to have done that, God would have violated his own attribute of holiness. He would have violated his own attribute of justice. He couldn't do it and be God. Now, that's why salvation is such a profound demonstration of his power. Now, philosophers, pagan, unbelieving philosophers have struggled with this for millennia. How a holy God can forgive sin. Let me just tell you about a few of them. Socrates. If you're thinking of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, that's Socrates to you. Once said, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. See, he rightly understood that a a holy deity uh, would be holy and just. And he couldn't extend mercy without violating that. He understood that. In salvation, God demonstrates his mercy. And it's been said often, and it's, and it's absolutely true, that in salvation, God's attributes of holiness and justice and his attribute of mercy are reconciled. How did that happen? Well, let's consider some more philosophers. Uh, the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus called his lecture room the hospital for sick souls. He understood that as he thought it through. Epicurus, another uh, Greek philosopher, called his teaching medicine for sick souls. Seneca, a contemporary of Paul and a Roman statesman, taught this. All men are looking toward salvation. He taught that all men were overwhelmingly conscious of their weakness and insufficiency and necessary things. And therefore, we need a hand let down to lift us up. Now, what is he referring to here? What are they all referring to? I believe what they're referring to is the innate conscience of a human being that everyone has. We may suppress it, but basically human beings have a conscience which tells us, prompts us, things that are intrinsically right and intrinsically wrong. And we're also going to see, have you ever wondered, I'm sure you have, how God can hold accountable, well, these tribes in India that have never been reached, or the guy and the woman down in the Brazilian rainforest who've never been reached, how God can hold them accountable? Well, beginning in the verses directly after the ones we're studying today, Paul gives us one reason. And that is creation. That all human beings are held accountable to God simply by looking at the world in which they live and knowing there is a creator. That's why just this evolutionary fantasy of things just happening is such an affront to God. I think we've been numb to it because we've heard it so long. But the fact of the matter is... I believe it takes a lot more faith to believe that than it does to believe in a creator. But anyhow, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 begins to say how every human being God holds accountable for knowing him because of creation. 
and that men have to suppress that truth. And what happens when human beings suppress that truth? So we have creation and we have conscience. Now listen, salvation is a profound demonstration of God's power. An indescribable boom in which God's attributes of holiness, justice, mercy, and love work together in perfection to, to make a change a lost sinner into a reconciled, beloved, secure child of God. Is it any wonder why Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome and was not ashamed? The same thing should motivate us. There's a third word. Faith. Faith. Hang on here, friends. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who, what? Believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, the idea here is not just simply saying, yeah, I believe that's a music stand. Or if we had a footstool here, yeah, I believe that's a footstool. This is an active, ongoing uh, sense, uh, a tense in the thing to believe. It's not just believing, yeah, that's a footstool. It's saying, yeah, that's a footstool, and you stand on it. That's saving faith. Just believing it's a footstool is not saving faith. You understand the difference? It's like when we get in our car and we go down the road, we can say, yeah, I believe this thing has brakes. Until someone pulls out in front of us and we push on that brake. That's when you really believe it has brakes. It either works or it doesn't. You see, it's an active, ongoing sense. It's not just a mental assent to to a, a set of facts. It's being willing to place one's life and eternal destiny on those facts. You understand? I hope you understand the difference what I'm talking about. This, I believe this clearly teaches that salvation does not involve any complicated religious rituals or any processes or any ornate or elaborate religious exercises. Salvation is a product of faith alone in the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, I believe the clearest statement of that is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. There it says, listen carefully. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now listen to the first phrase. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Let's do a little English lesson here. Saved. What tense is that in? Past, present, or future? It says, for by grace you have been saved. Is that future tense? No. That would be by grace you will be saved. Is it present tense? No, that would be for by grace, you are being saved. What is it? It's past tense. He's speaking to Christians, for by grace, you have been saved. He's talking about an accomplished fact the moment they believed in Jesus for salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith in the gospel. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And just so there's no mistakes, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now listen, this has been debated, discussed, philosophized about, wrestled over, agonized over, more times than I can even count in my own life, much less through the millennia. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing is a gift of God, not of work so that no one can boast. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift. Um, it comes to us through the power of God. It comes to us through faith in what Jesus has done for us in our behalf, plus nothing. Now, I know those are fighting words. It's not a result of any good works that we do. It doesn't come about because of that. Um, It is not maintained by good works. Jesus did it all and is doing it all in us. And you're thinking, but, 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 but. No! Let's go what the Bible says here. Oh, what, what about good works? Are you saying, Tom, that we shouldn't do good works? Absolutely not. The Apostle Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, don't even think a thought like that. How can you who have been saved go into something that you died to? That, that's, that's inconceivable that you would do that. You know what all we can do? Love God. And be thankful to God for what he has done for us. And as we do that, the last thing we would ever want to do is live a daily life which dishonors him. So the natural thing for a child of God is to live a life of good works that honor God. Not so that we might be saved, but because we have been saved. Now, I'm sorry, this has been the linchpin of my life. I lived 33 years on one side of that. And I'm telling you, you do not know the joy of the Lord when you think that somehow you have to have an established pattern of good works to maintain, to help God out, to see this process through. And people who are on the other side of that say, oh, you just want an easy way. You want a freedom to sin. Baloney! The hardest thing is to know the love of God and to think when, you, when I sin against him that I, am, that I am diminishing in some way that love that he has for me. It's the last thing I want to do. Now, I know that salvation by grace through faith is a hard thing for us to understand. And I really think in our culture it's particularly hard to understand because as Americans... Not so much anymore, but in this area still quite a bit. What do we value? Uh, We value hard work. We value self-sufficiency. We value reward. We value value accomplishment, the right to earn rewards. That's how our economy works. Everything about our experience in life is that. You work hard, you attain something. And then comes along the gospel and you're told it's just the opposite. No, all you can do is receive it and be grateful for it. That's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, at least initially. You know, we want to feel a sense of accomplishment in what we attain. But listen to this. If we earn salvation in any way, Or we maintain salvation in any way. Two things. Number one, we have reason to boast. And I can only see how that would go. Why, I never missed a day of church in my life. Well, I never missed a day of church in my life. Plus, I gave X amount of dollars every week. Huh, well, I support mission. You see how it goes? There's no end to it. And you know what else, which is even worse? 
When we boast about what we have done to earn or maintain our salvation, whether we do it in our hearts or outwardly, that robs God of his glory. Think of it that way. I had a good friend I took to a, a, a medical appointment this week. And on the way home, he said, now you've got to stop. I've got to fill your car with gas. And my first thought was, I, I just told him, I said, don't take away my blessing. You know, don't take away God's glory. The fourth word. And this is, you think I'm fired up about that last one. Wait about this one. Righteousness. Righteousness. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I believe this is one of the most beautiful truths in all of Scripture. Please. You know, the frustration I have coming here today, and I told Tammy this morning, I so desperately want you to understand these things. I, I mean, I, I just, I'm frantic for you to understand these things. Because once you understand the things that we are talking about today, every bit of the Bible falls right into place. If you, if you are askew on any of them, you're always going to be saying, well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, you're never quite sure. Well... A year ago on Doctrine Wednesday, I taught two hours on the subject of righteousness. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that this morning. But the simple, profound truth is this, right here. Oh, where am I? Oh, the product of believing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, is righteousness. You're thinking, come on, I know a lot of people that came to Christ and they were really scumbags yet. Nah, that's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about. Yeah, God saves us where we are. But listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Right? Okay. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And when he says law there, that means following a list of rules or good works. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through what? Faith in whom? Jesus Christ for whom all who believe. I'm read that again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned come and fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the critical question. Whose righteousness is this referring to? Is it yours? Is it mine? No, that would mean the righteousness from Tom. It's the righteousness from whom? God. Thank you. If it was ours, you know, it would be from good works, what we have done, what we have not done, 
uh, all the good thoughts and all the you know thoughts that we wanted to have but didn't have. You know, it's, it's, it becomes a totally scrambled egg when we start thinking of ours. Whose righteousness is it then? Listen to Paul's testimony. I don't have this first part up, but I'll put up the second part. He is writing to the church at Philippi, and he first lists all the reasons why he, Paul, would have had reason to be righteous and acceptable before God based on who he was. Now, this is prior to conversion. And I want you to listen to this because it's impressive. Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, I could say, hey, I've preached, oh, I don't know how many sermons. I've done all these funerals. I've done all these weddings. I blah, 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 blah. Listen to what Paul says about before Christ. He says, um, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Here's the first thing. Circumcise the eighth day, which every good Jewish boy had done. And it was indicative of taking on the law of Moses. He said, I was of the people of Israel. There was no question that he was a pure Jew. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, which historically was one of the good tribes in Israel. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he was, if anyone was a Jew, it was Paul. And he says, um, as to the law, a Pharisee. This was the strictest sect within Judaism and Jesus' most bitter opponents during his public ministry. That's what, that's what a Pharisee was. As to zeal, hey, I just didn't talk about that church. I persecuted that church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now think about it. There were 600 and some laws at the time that the, that the, that the Apostle Paul would have been an unbeliever and, a, and a, one of the religious leaders in Israel at first. And he says, as all these rituals and laws, I was blameless. So if anyone was going to make it because of his goodness, it was Paul. But he says, whatever I ha- gain I had, I counted as loss, zip, nada, for the sake of Christ. Okay, Paul clearly states that his own righteousness was nothing before God. Whose righteousness is he rejoicing in then? In Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, he says this. The next verses. Indeed, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Now, that really means all things. There's a lot of scholars that believe Paul even lost a wife over this because one of the requirements of being a member of the Jewish ruling body was to be married. We don't have any evidence of that. It's just a supposition. But he lost everything. He lost his position. He lost his prestige. He lost his good reputation and probably everything that he owned in the world. And what did he think about that? For whose sake I have lost all things and count them as rubbish. Other translations say dung, manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which he had just said he was blameless in, but that 
righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Whose righteousness is he talking about? He's talking about God's righteousness as revealed in Jesus Christ. It's what's known theologically as imputed righteousness. When God nailed Jesus to the cross, my sin, your sin, were imputed, placed in his account. He died for them, paid the penalty. When we believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is imputed, placed in a bookkeeping term, into our heavenly account. And as such, and only as such, can God see us as accepted in the Beloved. That's a huge, huge thing to get through our skulls, friends. But if we do, I'm telling you, the New Testament and the rest of Scripture absolutely falls right into line. Here it is, folks. We are, every human being is born in sin. It's our natural state. The reason we commit acts of sin is because we are sinners. And the best... You've heard me say this before. The best proof of that is this. How many of you have had to teach your children how to be naughty? Any of you? No, that's natural. What do you have to teach them how to be? Good. That's not natural. That shows that we are born in sin. Uh, Granted, some are really bad, some are not bad at all. There's some people who are atheists who are morally upright, good, wonderful citizens of the states, of the world. But no one, no one is good enough and everyone needs a savior. You got it? You don't need to be bad to need a savior. You just need to be. Now, human beings approach this in one of four general ways. There's probably more, but I'm summed it up in four. The first is this. There is no wrong or right. There is no God. Just live your life. Enjoy yourself. Just don't be judgmental of other people. That's moral relativism. And there's a, an increasing number of people who believe that's the right way to think about things. Here's a second way. There is right and wrong. There's probably a God. But you know what? I am not as bad as that Jill Christian. And I am certainly better than Joe Christian. I do more good things than bad things. God will accept me. That's a big piece of the pie of humanity right there. There's a third way. There is right. There is wrong. There is a God. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. The way to Jesus is through religion. If I am devoutly religious, if I get involved in a church and do all these good things, surely at the end that balance of good or bad will tip in my favor. Now friends... That's a really, really common and scary position. In my early years, I would have been more on that side, although I never doubted my salvation. I want to ask you a question. I'm going to read one, a verse in Scripture that has always troubled me, much more in years past than it does now. 
It's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Now listen to this very carefully. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, only they are going to get there. On that day, that's judgment day, many will say to me, now listen to this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That really troubled me for years and years. Does that trouble you? Who in the world is that talking about? How many people can honestly cry out to God, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many great works in your name? How many people can do that? And he's saying, depart from me. I never knew you. It has to be that these people did not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. It has to be. Because they're all crying out, Lord, Lord. But these people crying it out, he doesn't know. So the question, I believe, is, what is the will of my Father who is in heaven? Well, Jesus tells us in John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You want to do the will of God? Believe in Jesus. And in John chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus said, And this is the will of him who sent me. You want to do the will of God? This is, this is another statement of it. That I should lose nothing of what he has given me. You want to do the work of God? John six twenty nine. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You know what, friends? That has to be religious people. Sincerely religious people. Maybe even devoutly religious people like Paul was. Who never came to terms with Jesus Christ. Who may have said, yes, that's a footstool, but never stepped and stood on that footstool. It has to be. Who else could it be? And then there's a fourth way. And this is the one that changed my life. It's what I was speaking about last week. That's this. I am born in sin and I commit acts of sin. I am incapable of being good enough for God. I believe that Jesus Christ died on, for my sins, all of them. I believe he arose from the dead the third day, overcoming the penalty of sin, which was death, just as he said he would. When I gave my life to him and trusted him as my savior, he made me a new creation. He forgave me. He reconciled me to God. I was no longer in sin. I was in Christ because the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed by grace through faith into my heavenly account. And as such, and only as such, can God accept me. What about holiness? What about good works? Because I love God, because I am grateful eternally for what he did, I strive to live a daily life that honors 
him. To do otherwise is to rob him of his glory. And I'm using I in the sense of we there. Now, the good news about Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation for all who will receive it by faith. It changed my life. It will change yours as well. It's the truth why all these churches exist throughout the land, Bible-building churches. It's why Christianity has changed the world. Um, And it's why we don't mourn like other people who have no hope when we lose a loved one in Christ. It will come to this, receiving this truth will save anyone at any time from anything. Now, this morning, I want to ask a question and leave you with a challenge. Why was the gospel necessary? We've just come through harvest season, and we've all been driving down the country roads, and what's coming at us taking three-fourths of the road? A combine. Why is that combine necessary? Whether it has a grain head or a corn head on it. Why is that necessary? Well, corn, wheat, soybeans. We're not for corn, wheat, and soybeans, at least in our area. There would be no reason whatsoever to have a combine, would there? Let's take something simple like a toothbrush. Why does that exist? If all of us were toothless, we wouldn't need that, would we? I mean, we could go on and on. How about an airstrip? Why do you build an airstrip? Well, if there were no airplanes, you certainly wouldn't need an airstrip. So why is the gospel necessary? Why did God have to reveal his power in the gospel? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross, be buried, and rise again the third day so the gospel could be real and effective? I'm pretty sure you all know the answer. It's one word. It's three letters. It's sin. And you say, oh, that's easy. Anyone knows that. Well, you know what? We live in a world that increasingly does not know that. And they desperately need to know it because unless you know that, you can't take the cure. Now, here's your challenge. It's going to be two parts. We're going to have a challenge light and a challenge regular. Young people, I desperately want you to take at least the challenge light. Please, because you have lived in a world that just about all your life has said many of the things that the Bible says are wrong are right and okay. So here's the challenge light. We've just studied Romans 16 and 17. Uh, The light challenge is to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Now I sat right at my desk and I read it out loud. Tammy wasn't there so she didn't think I was losing my marbles. It takes about two minutes. Romans chapter 18 versus the end of the chapter, or till the end of the chapter. That takes two minutes. I challenge you every day to read that and allow the word of God to speak to you. Now, I know some of you are going to read that and think, oh, I don't do that one. That one I don't do. Yeah, keep reading. Trust me, there's something in there for everyone. Every day for one week, Two minutes, challenge light, 
Romans chapter 18, or chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And beginning at verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul writes a conclusive, ironclad argument as to why everyone needs the gospel. And leaves no, takes no prisoners on the issue of sin. If you want the challenge regular, read Romans chapter 18 verses chap, through chapter 3, verse 20. And you know what comes after verse 20 of chapter 3? But now a righteousness from God is revealed. It's like Paul takes us down, 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 down until, oh my goodness, yes, you're right. I'm done. He says, but now. We can go back to that good news. Will you take challenge light? Please, shake your heads. Young people, please. Will you do that? Every day. Better yet, do the regular challenge. Guys, thanks for listening. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to thank you for this day. I want to personally thank you for the change in my life that you've brought to me through the gospel. You have been so kind and gracious and thorough beyond anything I can understand. And I plead with you, Lord, that if there are any hearts here that are moved to trust Jesus, maybe for the very first time as their Savior from sin, that you will give them the courage to simply say, Lord, I am a sinner, and I know my sin separates me from you. I know I can never be good enough. But I believe that Jesus took my place on the cross, and I give you my life trusting Jesus today. I take him as my Savior. And Lord, I pray that if there are any who've done that, that you will give them the courage to make it known so that they can be mentored. And Lord, I just pray for the rest of us that you'll help us to stay reminded of of the magnitude of your love for us and your gifts to us and your provision for us through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit day by day. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.